A dutiful cabinet minister. That's how former government services minister Stuart Robert described his spirited defence of the failed robo-debt scheme at the Royal Commission today. In an extraordinary series of exchanges, Stuart Robert conceded that he had concerns about the debt recovery scheme almost from the moment he took on the portfolio, but that the Westminster tradition dictates cabinet solidarity. Take a listen. Do you accept, Mr Robert, that what you've said in response to that question from Ms Tingle is inconsistent with the state of mind you assert you held at the conclusion of the deep dive session on the 4th of July 2019? Yes, I do. Okay. Keeping in mind, if I've got a personal opinion, my next step is to seek the appropriate advice. Until such time as that arrives, I remain a Cabinet Minister and am responsible for holding the Cabinet line. The scheme has already cost taxpayers around $1.8 billion, I believe, in compensation and covering it every step of the way has been Saturday Papers, Rick Morton. Welcome back to RN Drive. Hey, Andy. How are you going? Let me just ask you to correct the, the cost there. How much has this cost taxpayers, this, this system, in terms of payouts that have happened subsequently? That was, that was the settlement figure. But in terms of the entire robodebt scheme from start to finish, including this commission... Uh, other inquiries, uh, the staff hours uh, and, uh, you know, the on costs, so to speak, of trying to set the thing up that they've then had to repeal, um, it's closer to $3 billion um, from start. So it's a lot of money. It's a huge mistake. It's one of the most significant um, in living memory. There's been a lot of jaw-dropping moments so far in this Royal Commission. We heard about, uh, well, there was a 7.30 interview in uh, 2019 in which Laura Tingle asked Stuart Robert about income averaging, basically admitting that he was knowingly misleading the public because he was towing the party line despite his own private concerns about the scheme. What, what, What do you make of those comments? Uh, I mean, honestly, they were bizarre. (laughs) I mean, he essentially said that I had to tell mistruths publicly, not just once but repeatedly, even though I personally knew that I was not telling the truth um, because that was my job. And and Commissioner Catherine Holmes said to um, former Minister Robert, it's your job to mislead the Australian people. And he said, well, it's my job to defend and support the decisions of government. Um, The point that Commissioner Holmes was making was that you don't need to make up figures and stats to back up your um, support of that government. You can say it with wishy-washy language if you want, but he went one step further. And to say that under oath uh, in this commission when we're trying to get to the bottom of who is telling the truth, uh, particularly when his evidence butts up against the evidence of his former secretary, Rene Leon, is a really interesting strategy. Yeah, I just can't imagine a more damning kind of uh, piece of evidence that sort of questions party politics. I mean, we've long sort of suspected that this has been the case, but to have it on oath, as you say. Stuart Robert was at pains to point out that he was acting behind the scenes, however, claiming that once he got the legal advice from the South, uh, the Australian Solicitor General, he acted within hours. Take a listen now. Within hours, I walked straight into the Prime Minister's office presented it to him, talked it through, asked for an immediate ERC as as quickly as possible, which was granted, and said that we need to stop the use of averaging, all of which I informed the Secretary the next day. So, Rick Morton, what did we learn about Stuart uh, Stuart Roberts' efforts to influence his colleagues once he he became aware of these potential issues? You see, even that evidence is really... 
problematic because there are two issues with it, right? So there's this July 4 meeting where he says on under oath that he was the one that demanded they go to the Solicitor General for this opinion. Um, having said that, we've got evidence already at this commission that he was briefed at that meeting about the fact that they had Australian government solicitor prospects advice about a federal court case and that was where the recommendation via the department came from to go to the Solicitor General. So he's claiming credit for that for a start. He says he has no memory of being briefed about that advice. And then when he does get the Solicitor General's advice, and granted the department sits on it for about five weeks before they brief him, but Rene Leon telephones Stuart Robert on 29th of October, that's her evidence, she has a witness to that, and tells him about that advice. He says he has no recollection of that happening at all. Um, and that the first time he was briefed on the contents of that advice was on the 7th of November, which is when he says he then went for the Prime Minister. But even then, in his own statement, um, on November 12, he concedes that he was checking with Christian Porter, who was the Attorney General at the time, uh, whether he thought the Solicitor General's opinion was correct. So th there are a couple of competing accounts um, that would at least cast some doubt over Stuart Roberts. Um, of For the average person, I mean, uh, you know, Rick, you spend hours and hours in these uh, uh, hearings. You, you, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm sure you've got lots of other things you'd like to be doing, but you <laughs> spend hours and hours watching this testimony. And for the average person, they sort of dip in and out, uh, you know, and they, they hear the mo these sort of outraging, outrageous statements and then perhaps nothing. How do you think all this is filtering through to the Australian public? Is the full gravity of what you're hearing making it through to the Australian people? I honestly don't think it is. And I'm not normally one to say that about, you know, certain issues. Usually you can get a grasp for things, but the moving parts of this are so enormous and there are so many different people, not just one or two people that you might want to point blame to, but multiple people who acted at multiple, you know, different points of time over a period from 2014 to 2019, 2020, who we have heard evidence, not just theories, but evidence of people actively seeking to mislead, to cover up public servants, officials who took it upon themselves to act in advance of ministerial pressure. And then we've also heard from ministers who themselves exerted pressure and who asked departments to fight back against people who were committing suicide on this scheme by releasing their public details. All of these different things pieced together to form, I, I think, Honestly, one of the most outrageous portraits of the way governance is conducted in this country. And unless you're paying attention to every little step, it's really hard to get that full picture, um, which is one of the reasons why I say yes to doing interviews like this, because I'm, I'm trying to, you know, relay it, because I think it's really important. And look, I'll be the first to admit that there has been a, a little bit of well, a bit of a blind eye to, from some media organisations because I don't, I don't know, I don't know why. But when I you mean, when you describe it, 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 yeah, when you really describe the full gravity of of this, when you hear how, uh, yeah, just how I don't know, bald faced this was. Like, I mean, even even today, for example, we've heard we, a, a public servant from DSS was called back because it turns out she gave evidence last year saying that she didn't know that DHS was doing the income averaging as part of this proposal. She worked for DHS and provided program strategy advice on this um, and knew that it involved income averaging. Like this is just, you know, the kind of stuff that's happening on the stand is pretty crazy. Just back to Stuart Robert quickly. I mean, he, you know, effectively was deflecting blame. Uh, he hit back at the Department of Human Services claiming they withheld advice from him. H how much of, of these kinds of explanations are going to be effective in deflecting blame if that is his intention? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that that has the weight that he thinks it does. I mean, certainly <clears throat> one of the reasons why it was, was withheld from him was because Rene Leon, perhaps quite rightly, had a concern that this information wouldn't be briefed properly to him um, and that if Catherine Campbell, um, her counterpart secretary at Department of Social Services, who was in charge when this scheme began at DHS, if she got wind of it, um, then she might brief something slightly different in terms of the effect of the Solicitor General's opinion. So Renee Leon was trying to keep this very close to her chest, um, I suspect because she wanted to make sure that they had every I dotted and every T crossed, which is exactly what happened. Um, she directed her department to prepare a brief, which essentially spelled out, here's what will happen if you do not um, stop this thing. And what will happen is that you will be, myself included, will be liable for um, misfeasance in public office. And she put that to a brief uh, on September seven, uh, on November seven, to Stuart Robert, because I, I think she knew from that telephone conversation that he didn't really have a mind to abandon it at all. In fact, he said we're going to double down. You mentioned Renee Leon there, who appeared yesterday. I mean, Stuart Robert also hit back at the Department of Human Services, claiming they withheld that advice, as I said. But do you, will that will that claim be further tested in the coming days? Well, I mean, I mean, there's no doubt that they, they withheld it. I mean, they got the Solicitor General's advice on 24th of September. The first phone call under evidence that Renee Leon um, gave to Stuart Robert that divulged the contents, you know, the impact of that advice was 29th of October. So we're talking a five-week period. Um, his office apparently knew that they'd got the advice that were working up, you know, working their way through it to figure out what they were going to do. Um, but certainly there was a five-week gap. Now, he says that gap was because, you know, was to his disadvantage and that he would have acted immediately. They say that, you know, he'd indicated um, that he didn't want to abandon this program and they were trying to basically line up their ducks to, so that when they did go to him, he would put a stop to it immediately. He had nowhere, no wriggle room, essentially. Well, Rick, so much of this Royal Commission is damning and perhaps today is, is most damning just because of the kind of, well, the insight into the inner workings of government. Rick Morton from the Saturday Paper, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. On the text line, Anne says, Hi, Andy, it's a mystery why Rick Morton hasn't been on Insiders to provide the truth about robo-debt. Here, here. His uh, reporting on this Royal Commission is truly commendable. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.